hope you'll open a Bible now to 1 Peter chapter 1. The Bible's in the pews. That's page 1014. 1 Peter chapter 1. I started a um, series of a few sermons this summer on the book of 1 Peter. I began that last week. Today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him Now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Our fathers, we come to these words that were written to people going through very hard times. We ask that you would apply them to our hearts and our particular situations. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, if you were here, I I told you about Peter, the man who wrote this. Uh, If you're familiar with him from reading parts of the New Testament, you know that he was a Galilean fisherman. In fact, he he was uh, participating in his family fishing business when Jesus called him to be one of his 12 uh, students, his 12 disciples. He not only was one of the 12 disciples, but there are many indications throughout the Gospels that he was the spokesman for the 12. He was somewhat of the leader of the other disciples. He knew what it was like not only to uh, succeed in his service to Christ, but to fail. This is the man that Jesus foretold would deny him, uh, and deny that he ever knew him, and Peter adamantly insisted that he would die before he would do such. But then he did exactly what Jesus had foretold that he would do. He could have given in to remorse and despondency at that time, but he was restored to fellowship and to ministry. And without going, recovering a lot of the same tracks as last week, he suffered uh, greatly, even as he was used for Christ. Legend tells us uh, that he was martyred as a, in, through crucifixion for being a believer. But now let's look at what he writes about, because he's writing to people who are going through a hard time. They are suffering. And I was thinking about this this week, that if, if, if you or if I was given the opportunity to compose a letter to Christians in North Korea, the most oppressive, uh, highest persecuted land toward Christians nation in in the world, Uh, what would I uh, write to them? And it was not quite that bad, but it was close, uh, these people to whom Peter is writing. 
In fact, he greets them in verses 1 and 2. We'll just kind of go through verses 1 to 9. He greets them as the elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he lists off these several countries, these areas, Galatia, Cappadocia, and so forth. Uh, these were... Uh, these were believers from a Jewish background, some from a Gentile background, and they had had to flee from Jerusalem. They had fled because of the oppression of the Roman emperor named Claudius. And they had settled in little communities in that part of the world then known as Asia Minor. And so Peter addresses them as exiles or pilgrims. We know there are other places in the Bible that call followers of Christ exiles or pilgrims in a figurative sense of the word because we are, this is not our home. This world is not our home, so we're called pilgrims. He means more than that here. They literally had been uprooted from, from their homes, and so they were exiles in this atmosphere of tension and persecution. Now, Peter does something that I would not think of doing, or probably you wouldn't think of either. Right off the bat, he jumps into doctrine. Before verse 1 is final, he says, to those who are elect exiles. And then right after, he lists all those countries. He mentions foreknowledge, he mentions sanctification, and so forth. Now, that's not popular today. We live in a day that even in Christian churches, by and large, in the mainstream anyway, Bible doctrine is seen as a low, a low priority. The mood of the day is let's give the minimum amount of truth to the maximum amount of people. People will say, just give me something practical. I'm not interested in all that doctrinal talk. Well, there's a problem. There are many problems with that. One is I, I compare that to a person who says, I want a healthy body. I want strong muscles. I want skin that looks good. I want nice features, but I don't care about a skeleton. I don't care about a skeletal structure. I'm only interested in the minimal parts to get by. Well, if you have a body with no skeletal structure, a human body, you've got a problem. Uh, and so you need muscle and skin in your Christian body, so to speak. But to have a strong, you must have a strong, stable foundation when you go through the storms of life. And so we need, you and I need to know... Uh, essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And it's not just so we can pass some test if we're given an exam. It's for practical Christian living. It's for what we are going to go through. When I was in high school, I had a friend that was very, very hostile toward Christianity and toward Christians. He felt we were all hypocrites. And his name was Bart. I guess his name still is Bart. But at that time, he and I were friends, but there was, this, there was always a tension in my senior year in high school, a, a traveling speaker with the Christian ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ, came to my hometown. And he had a whole series of meetings where he spoke. I went to a large public high school, and he spoke to sports clubs, uh, athletic clubs. He spoke at fraternities and various organizations and so forth. And toward the end of the time he was there, as the end of the week came, he mentioned to me, he said, that guy, speaking of my friend Bart, has shown up every time I speak. And I can tell he is listening. He said, why don't you set up and the three of us get together this Saturday? So sure enough, that Saturday, Bart and I and this speaker named Gene Sealander go to McDonald's. And I, I pick them up in my car and we go. And I, and I leave them sitting at a picnic table outside. And I go inside to leave them to have a private conversation. Well, during that time, when I went back, Gene says, why don't you, Bart, why don't you tell Chip what just happened? And he said, I... I 
I've decided to follow Christ. I, I've trusted Jesus or something to that effect. And uh, so we drove back. I took Bart home, and then I took Gene to where he was staying. And, he, and Gene said to me, he said, now here's what needs to happen. This week you need to get with him, and you need to cover two things, two lessons. First is the parable of the sower. Second, teach him about the return of Christ, the second coming. He said, because the parable of the sower is going to give him an understanding of what's going to happen to him that's going to pull at everything now he says he believes. And second, give him an understanding of the second comings because that is the Christian hope, what we look forward to. What was Gene Sealander saying? Give him doctrinal basis. Begin to build a skeleton, so to speak. Uh, he needs to understand what is going on with him. And I think that was wise counsel. What's Peter saying to them? Why does he say right off the bat to these suffering Christians, persecuted Christians, why does he use the word elect? Because we need to know, and when you're going through hard times, you need to know God wants you. You may feel no one else does, but we are wanted by God. We may feel like we're strangers and outsiders, and yet you may feel unwanted in the eyes of the world, but you're not unwanted to God. And this brings us to the doctrine in the Bible called the doctrine of election. Now, Scripture speaks often on the doctrine of election. If you and I are to go to be biblical in our thinking, if we are to have a strong skeletal structure, we need to have some understanding of election and predestination. If you're going to go through hard times, if you are going through hard times, you need an understanding of election and predestination. Let me explain. These concepts were not invented during the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s and later in the 1600s. Uh, they go right back to Scripture. Here are a few examples. Matthew chapter 22, for many are called, but few are chosen. Luke 18, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, for his elect, who cry out to him day and night? Titus chapter 1, Paul begins by saying, Paul, a servant of, of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Ephesians chapter 1, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, one of the most popular views of election or predestination has been called the prescience, prescient view. Pre, before, science, knowledge, prescient, before, for, knowledge, before, knowledge. In this view, and I've heard this countless times, from people. This view says, oh, I believe in election. What that means is God looked down this periscope through time and he looked ahead and he saw there's old Joe out there, or there's Sam, or there's Sally, and she's going to choose to receive the gospel, to believe in Jesus. And so I see that, therefore I will elect them before the foundation of the world. Now that is very popular, and I would imagine in a crowd this size, there'd be a number that would say, yeah, that's the way I've understood election, that God foreknew who would choose him, and then he based his choice on that. But there, there are problems with that, and that is it does not square with Scripture. Uh, Romans 8, it doesn't square with Romans 9, and it certainly doesn't square with Ephesians chapter 1. So let me give you my understanding and a formal uh, theological definition, description of election. The doctrine of election declares that God, before the foundation of the world, 
chose certain individuals from among the fallen members of Adam's race to be the objects of his undeserved favor. These and these only he purposed to save. God could have chosen to save all people, or he could have chosen to save none, but he did neither. Instead, he chose to save some and to exclude others. His eternal choice of particular sinners for salvation was not based upon any foreseen act or response on the part of those selected, but was based solely on his own good pleasure and sovereign will. Thus, election was not determined by or conditioned upon anything that men would do, but resulted entirely from God's self-determined purpose. Now, that's the formal theological definition of election, unconditional. That's why it's called unconditioned, because there was no condition that God saw was going to be met by someone, which caused him then to make the choice of election. You say, well, I don't understand. How can God elect, and at the same time, we have to choose to believe? Well, there are many simple illustrations to help with that. I I like this one by R.B. Kuyper that was given years ago. He compared it like this. If you picture a rope, and that rope is going up into two ropes, and this rope is human responsibility, and this rope is God's sovereignty, that really they go up through two holes in the ceiling, which we can't see, and then there's a wheel, a pulley, up in the ceiling and so the rope goes over and it's like as you pull this one that one goes up and you pull this one that one goes up if I release the one of God's sovereignty and say it's got to be all human responsibility it must be my choice God cannot influence that then you fall if you release human responsibility and just hold on to and say well it's all of God Totally, there's no, it's almost fatalistic, it's just God doing all of this, and you fall the other way. The only proper position is to hold these two in tension. Now, I think John Piper is right when he said that we want, because of that tension of living with those two truths that seem at odds with one another, we tend to release one of those. And that's where we get into error. Uh, so, why do we have this? Now, this is especially for you theological types, which I hope is all of us, but those that really love theology, you have to understand where the context about election and predestination occurs in Scripture. And best of my knowledge and from all of my study, it is always in the context of trying to minister to people who are suffering. Now that's important. It is not like some guys in a college dorm room saying, let's, let's have a late night discussion about things we cannot solve just out of curiosity. Never do you find this in Scripture in that context. So you have it in the context of suffering. For example, the best-known passage that you often hear quoted is Romans 8, 28. We know that God, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now that is part of a very key chapter in a very, very important paragraph. Here's what the rest of that paragraph says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is a, that is a, uh, a very rich 
it's not even a, that's, I just read you part of a paragraph. That was three verses. Now, where does that come? It comes from earlier in the, in the chapter. That's at the end of Romans chapter 8. In verse 18 of chapter 8, it says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what's the context of Romans 8? Suffering, pain, trials, hard times, because it's when you suffer as you are suffering, and I dare not make the assumption that many of you are not. The questions that come to mind is, does God know? Does God care? Has he abandoned me? Where were you, Lord, when our brother died, as Martha and Mary said to Jesus when he, when he showed up at Bethany? Election shows I belong to him. It's been 17 years ago since our son, Stephen, was born. And uh, not to sound like a broken record, but the days surrounding his birth are still very fresh in my mind. As one disability after another was revealed, it seemed like with each passing test. He was born here, transported to Birmingham, but I can remember it like it was five minutes ago, standing there in that neonatal intensive care unit. And what was I thinking about by his little crib? Romans 8. Romans 8. Romans 8. I was not thinking about some real lightweight 10 steps on handling suffering. I was thinking about the passage from Romans 8. Why? Because that's why it was given. That is when these doctrines mean so much. They're given for comfort in suffering to understand election and predestination. Secondly, they're given to have hope in ministry. Sometimes people will create this straw man and say, if you believe that, then you will not. If you believe in election, then you will not be evangelistic or you will not care about missions because after all, if God is the one who elects and God's going to be the one who saves, then we can just sit back and do nothing and God will, uh, will change those people. He will bring those people to himself. I found nothing could be further from the truth. I, I prayed for my father for over 20 years. Uh, before he came to faith in Christ three years before he died. Most radical conversion to this day I've ever seen. But you, if you had listened to my prayers, and you, many of you, I don't mean to sound like this is unique, many of you pray for relatives or grown children or a spouse or fathers and mothers that only seem to get harder toward the gospel. They seem to care less now than when you started praying for them 15 years ago. How, what's the content of your prayers? Lord, help me to be so persuasive that I can convince this person that after 60 years of having one worldview, that in 15 minutes of talking to me, he'll change and have another worldview. No, of course not. Lord, change him. Lord, get his attention. Lord, give him faith. Lord, give him eyes to see. Give him ears to hear. What are you praying for? Lord, you do it. If I didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, and I thought, well, it's up to you, Chip, You've got 20 minutes to preach to these people, 25 minutes or however long it is, or, or even, maybe even 30 minutes, and uh, they've thought a certain way all their lives. They're distracted. They're thinking about where they've been, where they're going, and you've got just a few minutes to get their attention, do the best sales job you can, and convince someone of their own accord to change their whole worldview of what's right and wrong, true, eternal, and transient. Go get them. I'd come work at Northwestern. Y'all got any openings over there, Bob? I'd, I'd, be, I'd be out of here in a millisecond. What would the point of that be? Who can change a human heart? It's got to be God. I've found that this is what gives me hope. 
God's got his people, I wrote down. It gives me optimism that God has people marked out for himself in this city or on a campus or in a neighborhood. All I have to do is show up and follow the old campus crusade definition of share the good news about Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results up to God. That's, that's what we have to do. But it's based on the fact that God is the one who changes hearts. I must press on. Let's move ahead. In verse 3, he greets them not only as elect and scattered exiles, but as those who have a living hope. The living hope is a major theme of this whole letter, as we will see in the weeks ahead. And he mentions that it is based on the resurrection of Jesus. That's the basis of our hope. If God could raise Jesus from the dead, he can lift us up out of the pit of trials of our lives and take us to the eternal home he's preparing for us. To the unbeliever, hope is just wishful thinking. Oh, I, I, hope, I hope that works out. I hope I'm well. I hope I get a raise, or I hope I earn that diploma, or I hope I pass that test, or I hope she doesn't leave me. Now, that's wishful thinking. When the Bible uses this word in this context, it's certainty. It's the full assurance that God will do in the future everything that he said he will do. So I need to each day tell myself that, yes, I was dead in sin, that I had no life with God, that I committed sins against him as we all have. And the results of that was death, spiritual death. But while I was dead in my trespasses and sins, he sent Jesus. He demonstrated his own love in sending Jesus to be my substitute. I believe that when he died on that Roman cross, he took the punishment I deserved. He was my substitute. I trust in that. He has declared me now righteous. He's given me a new life. He's given me the gift of the Holy Spirit. An inheritance awaits me. I am his child. No one can take me from his hand. I will see him face to face and spend eternity in the best place possible. And that cultivates joy to think about that each day of what he has done. It's the certainty of what he will do in the future. He goes on in verse 4. He greets them as those who have an inheritance. Sometimes we like to dream about what it would be to receive a letter or some kind of... Um, t these things tend to show up with telegrams, though we don't use those often. Of this unknown uncle who you never met, never heard of, and suddenly he's left you $5 million, kind of um, Jane Eyre type thing. And, and so you think of that kind of inheritance. That's not the inheritance he speaks of here. This is one which will not be received in this world. When I was in college, I worked one summer with Campus Crusade on a beach project in Panama City, and there was a large uh, resort, very large resort, that the land had been bought in the early 1900s before anybody wanted, this is pre-air conditioning, before anybody wanted to go to Florida. And the granddad, who had long since died, had bought all this beachfront property that was now a large resort and there were three brothers I was on a work crew a maintenance crew and there were two brothers that they they stayed in the air-conditioned offices and drove new cars and the other brother was the manager of my maintenance crew he drove an old truck and he had old clothes and when he found out we were from a Christian group he quoted the reference which I can't remember right now some of you uh, Bible drill scholars What's the reference that uh, the first will be last and the last will be first? Anyone know? None of, oh, I'm sorry. Well, we've all flunked this morning. But it was, it's either it's Matthew something or another, and he would go by and he'd see us and go, Matthew, like, 7-7. Seven, seven. What he meant was he had gotten cut out of the will. 
And the two brothers of the three, they were living, you know, they were in the penthouse and he was in the outhouse. And his whole uh, assumption, his view was everything's going to get flip-flopped in heaven. I'm going to get it all and they're going to get nothing. Well, it's kind of an interesting perspective, nothing about that in the Bible, but, you know, not too biblical. But he had his reference down, and he'd ride by, and he'd always shout that. He'd see us out mowing grass. He'd go, Matthew 7, 7, you know, or whatever it was. He wanted that inheritance. That is not what this is talking about at all. This is a different type of inheritance. But look how it's described. Imperishable. It cannot be destroyed. Undefiled. It had not been acquired in some unlawful way. It is unfading. It will never lose its luster or its beauty. And notice the location. It is in heaven reserved for you, believer. It's in the safekeeping of Almighty God. He watches over it. It cannot be defiled. It cannot be eroded. It will not diminish. It is reserved. Now that is why we can rejoice in suffering. In verses 6 to 8, he greets them. He's greeted them as elect exiles. He's greeted them as scattered. He's greeted them as those who have an inheritance. And then he greets them as believers who are undergoing trials. And I'll stick with this for the last few minutes. In this you rejoice, he says. This is joy rooted in the power of what God has done. He says that in verse 6. In this you rejoice. You are not to rejoice in your circumstances, but through them. See, your circumstances change, but Jesus doesn't. If my circumstances are always the determining factor of whether I'm happy or sad or have joy or contentment, that will always fluctuate, and therefore your circumstances will always rule you. So we're called to rejoice not in our circumstances, but through them. You're able to rejoice through them because you have Jesus. That means... He saves you and is intimately involved in every aspect of your life, all that happens to you, including your circumstances. So if you lose your job, you don't rejoice in that circumstance, but you can rejoice through that circumstance. If you fail a test, you don't rejoice in failing the test, but through it. If you're sick, you do not rejoice in the sickness, but through it. Revealing Jesus to you, helping you to be more like him. Now, you can rejoice because, second, you know your trials are temporary. He says in verse 6, In this you rejoice for a little while, though for a little while. These temporary griefs and distresses are temporary. Now, what does it mean a little while? Does that mean 10 minutes or 15 minutes? John Piper says, In God's design, my distresses are brief, but brief is relative, right? If you say, I can hold my breath a long time. What do you mean by that? Two to three minutes. But if you say, I've lived in Macon a long time, I would take that to mean uh, 20 or 30 years, maybe longer than that. Totally different. Two to three minutes described as a long time, 20 plus years described as a long time. So what is he speaking here? Compared to others or compared to a lifetime on earth? It's contrasted to eternity. Compared to eternity even if it's a lifetime of trials, it's just a little while. Isn't that interesting, Afraid? It's just a little while. It's a little while. The inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, compared to the length and greatness of the time that we would have the trials. You can rejoice knowing God has a purpose for your trials in verse 7. He speaks here of the test of your faith and how your faith is more precious to God than gold. 
He mentions gold. Gold is mentioned many times in the Bible. In this analogy of God refining us like a goldsmith refines gold is mentioned more than once in the Bible. Do you know about gold? I read that 75% of all gold that has ever been produced has been extracted since 1910. 75% since 1910. It's been estimated that if we could take all of the gold that's ever been refined, it would form a cube that's 66 feet on each side. So we could fit it in this room, all the gold that's ever been refined. During the 1800s, gold rushes occurred whenever there was a large deposit discovered. The first documented discovery of gold in the United States, the first service got this wrong. You know which state it was in? It's not Georgia, North Carolina. That was in 1803. But the first major strike, the first major gold strike in the U.S. was in Dahlonega, here in Georgia. Later on, gold rushes occurred in California, Colorado, other places. Because of its historically high value, much of the gold mined throughout history is still in circulation today in one form or another. Wouldn't it be interesting to find out if you've got gold rings or gold necklaces to know where that gold was first mined and refined. Gold is a precious metal, but it's often when it's first discovered mixed with many impurities which lower its value and they decrease its beauty. Therefore, it has to be refined. And at the, at the base of refinement is heat, regardless of whether it's in the old days or even newer ways today. Heat is applied to the gold, and the infirmities separate from that. They float to the top. They're skimmed off by the goldsmith. And what Peter is saying is God looks at your faith, and he refines it like gold. It's like a refiner staring at this precious thing, and he's seeing the, the impurities float to the top as the heat is applied, and he scoops them off, and he, it's that much purer as he looks at it. He says that God refines your faith like gold. And guess what he uses to apply heat? Trials. It's a pretty simple formula. Trials, problems, afflictions. And his aim is not to destroy you. His aim is not even to harm you. His aim is to refine your faith. I think one of the best biblical illustrations of this came from the experience of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians, he writes, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our own strength that we despaired of life itself. He doesn't go into the details, but whatever they were facing was such that they basically, we can't live through this. We don't know if it's worth living through this. But then he says this in verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So this almost life-threatening affliction they had been through, he and his co-workers, he said, in looking at it, the purpose was it was to keep us from relying on ourselves, but to give total reliance upon God. Now that, that is God's design in refining our faith. He took away from Paul these props of safety, and he caused him to depend on him more. And what is the result? Praise, glory, and honor. Who in their right mind wants trials? 
Hey, let's be real in the church. Let's not spiritualize this. Does anybody sign up for this stuff? Well, they may be unhinged in other areas sometimes. If they say, I want trials and difficulties and afflictions. And what was it, Maxwell Smart? And loving it, (laughs) you know. I guess we all do. I mean, I guess we all want to avoid those. But when we see them from the eternal perspective, why would we want to avoid them? One other passage from Paul in 2 Corinthians. And he's talking about trials he faced. (laughs) This is in the Bible, okay? Trust me. It's 2 Corinthians 12.10. You can look it up later. Here's what he says. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Infirmities, that's sickness, that's bodily pains, folks. I take pleasure in reproaches. When people hate me and they get mad at me and they want to kill me, he says, I take pleasure in it. I take pleasure in necessities, in having only the the bare minimum. I take pleasure in persecution. I take pleasure in distresses. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now that's a unique spiritual perspective. He could look at all these afflictions, problems, trials, tests in his life, and he said, I take pleasure in them because I'm seeing them from God's perspective. So much more could be said, but not today. I'll leave you with these closing words. I'm just going to read them to you that Peter mentions to them in verses 8 and 9. I think they're affirming words. They're not instructional words. It's just kind of a comment that he makes. And I can bear testimony that I've seen it here with you over the years. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not, do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And I want personally to thank many of you who through the, through the years have allowed me to see that in you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we dare not, as believers in Christ, we dare not tra- uh, treat trials and tests and all sorts of afflictions now or in the future as, as incidental or accidents. Uh, and we dare not treat them as immediately assuming you're against us or that you hate us or you're trying to cast us off. We pray we'd have the mind of Christ. We pray we'd have the mind of the Apostle Peter to see how you are using these to refine our faith that is more precious than gold to you. Thank you for that. Thank you for your control. Thank you for your work. Many of us here, Lord, we were shaking our fists in your face. We did not give any concern to spiritual things, and yet you stopped us in our tracks, some of us when we were children, some when we were teenagers, some as adults, and we, we recognize it was you. It was you who sought us, not us seeking you. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.